there's a good reason you shouldn't overplan your itinerary when you're getting ready to finally take that vacation in Europe you've been dreaming about. Enjoy those sort of precious little moments where you get to try on being a European just for a little while. Coming up, we look at the benefits of becoming a temporary European when you travel in the old world. There's so much you want to see and do, but I got to tell you, it's very clear to me, the very best memories come between the stuff that's on your itinerary. It's those magic moments in the middle. There's a lot to look forward to in an in-between city. Find out what you can enjoy on a weekend stopover in Brussels, halfway between Paris and Amsterdam. And it's a breeze getting around. One of the advantages to public transportation in Brussels is that most of it is over the surface. And so taking the tram is a very nice way to visit town. A hometown guide to the Belgian capital, the fun of becoming a temporary European, and listeners tell us what's special about where they live. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. For most of my adult life, I've been raving about the need for us to plan our overseas travels in a way that gets us genuinely closer to the cultures we're visiting. In just a bit, we'll explore what my senior writer at Rick Steves Europe has discovered from his own travels on what it means to become a temporary European. And listeners tell us what they like best about the place they call home a little later in the hour at 877-333-RICK. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with a weekend getaway to the heart of the European Union, Brussels. During the week, Brussels is busy with diplomats and bureaucrats, but it has plenty for weekend visitors to enjoy as well, where you'll find the cutting edge of Europe in so many ways, dressed up in old-world charm. Hilburn Byes is an American who's made his home in Brussels, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to show how to best enjoy and appreciate his adopted hometown. Hilburn, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. So it's a little more complicated than that. Tell us your story, how you, an American, ended up in Brussels. Yes. So, um, in fact, I'm, I'm Dutch and American. My um, father um, worked for NATO, uh-huh. and uh, NATO is headquartered in Brussels, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, just south of Brussels is where they have their operational headquarters. So I grew up in the Belgian countryside from being very little all the way until uh, my um, early teens. All right. And how do you like living in Brussels? It's a thorough pleasure. Brussels is a town that attracts um, such a wealth of cultures. Uh, we have um, a whole diplomatic community. Because Brussels must be sort of like Washington, D.C., a city of a lot of people coming in for a little while and going kind of high-powered. The parallels one can draw with, with Washington, D.C. Are, are, are myriad. I understand there's, there's more lobbyists in Brussels than almost anywhere. More than in D.C. More than in D.C. Yes. Okay. But if you're going there as a, as a visitor or a, a, NATO, uh, a NATO officer, but you got a weekend free, what are the highlights that you'd be sure they check out? The center of town is very compact. So we have a big market square. We know it is the Grand Place. Nearby, you have a little statue. People know about it. It's mannequin piss. All of this needs to be seen. It can be seen very quickly. But Brussels consists of 19 communes. The way that New York has uh, boroughs, the way that Paris has arrondissements, we have the 19 communes, and about seven of them are absolutely worth going to visit. And public transportation enables you to get all over a, a sprawling city quite efficiently. It's a piece of cake. A day pass costs not too much, and with that, uh, one can get everywhere. One of the advantages to public transportation in Brussels is that most of it is over the surface, and so taking the tram is a very nice way to visit town. That's very nice. While we're speaking of uh, tram rides, we have a museum for trams, and I highly recommend it. During summer times, the, the tourist months, there's a little tram, a historic tram you can pay for uh, by going to the museum. It's included in the museum price, and it takes you through the forest to a village outside of Brussels, and it's the most magnificent, uh, dreamy little ride you can picture. 
a historic tram yes. out into the woods to a little village outside of Brussels. So much to see in Brussels. What is the big park, Santanier, something like this? The, the Cinquantenaire. It's a second. Jubileum Park. Was yeah. Built. It's a gorgeous collection of great sites, but it's out from the center away, and somebody might go, it's almost not even on the map. I can't, can I really get there conveniently? How would you get there? One would take the metro. Hop or the, the tram. Yeah. Or the tram. What would you find in this park? I love the park. So um, the park's exciting. It has a triumphal arch, which is very beautiful. It represents a Belgium being pulled ahead by the horses of progress. That's the way in the 19th century how architects would, would think of these There's poetic... a lot of grand architecture that seems to celebrate industrialization, isn't there? Absolutely. In the 19th century, it was very good for Belgium. We were, we were richer than everybody else. Well, the big train station in Antwerp, I think, has, a, has a, like a triumphal arch inside of it, and the centerpiece is a clock. Yes. Because now you've got to be on time to catch the train. The trains changed everything in Belgium. When we introduced the train, people had to... Towns used to have different times. That was based on whatever the church would It didn't choose. really matter. It didn't matter. People could be late for things that trains made people punctual. Okay, so the trains had an impact like nobody's business, and Brussels was one of the most industrialized corners of Europe, I suppose. Yes, we had the first train line on the continent. All right, now we were going to take the tram out to this big park. Yes. You're going to find... Uh, there's just several world-class museums out there. What would you see? Yes, I would absolutely visit the Military Museum. Mm-hmm. It's a, a museum that traces um, the history starting as early as the Battle of Waterloo. Now, you can see a great deal about the Napoleonic Wars in other countries, but here is a collection where we have uniforms from all of the protagonist and belligerent countries of the Napoleonic Wars. All of them, all of them lined up because there was a big scavenger hunt out at the, at the battlegrounds. Oh, right out there outside of town, right. Waterloo. Because I was very impressed by that, mu- that military museum, and it didn't even occur to me till right now, oh, of course, Waterloo was just a stone's throw away. What's the name of the park again in English? The easiest to remember is it's a Jubilee Park, Jubal Park. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hilburn Byers. We're talking about Brussels and all of its, all of its adventures. Our yes. phone number is 877-333-7425. And Stephen's calling in from Cudahy, Wisconsin, with a comment about Waterloo. As a matter of fact, we're just talking about that. Stephen, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. My wife and I were in Waterloo for the bicentennial, June 18th, uh, 2015, and there were just thousands and thousands of reenactors in military and civilian costume, and it was just a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance. Wow, because that was a big battle. Oh, it was huge. Stephen, that was an excellent time to go visit Waterloo. And to give you a sense of the scale of the reenactment, they made the reenactment for the bicentenary the same size with the same amount of actors as there were soldiers at the real battle. So they had that many volunteers to do this. Yep. So they're little Napoleonic associations, historical associations. Uh, you, know, ah. these, you know, these maniacs like to dress up in, in, in old clothes, and they come and in great numbers, and they bivouac, and then they go out and pretend to fight. So we have Civil War reenactors in our country, and you would have uh, Battle of Waterloo, Napoleonic War reenactors, Thirty Years' War reenactors, you name it, all over. Precisely. Kilburn, when it, what is if you just go to it's Waterloo a, on a regular time, a, what do you see? It's a fantastic. So during summertime, they always have a couple of reenactors. It's, it's very likely, especially on at the weekends, to find a, mm-hmm. a seven or eight people dressed up, in, uh, and it's it's nice. Then there's a panorama. The panorama is um, we, we we know these things. We've seen historical panoramas. It's a big room, and and it, then a large painting. Oh, it's a, a big circ- circular painting. Big so circular painting. In the, in the old days, in the in the 19th century, I suppose, before they had movies, they would paint these circular panoramas, and they would go on the road, and they'd set them up for a while and people would pay to go in there and actually see the sort of surround 
the, the surround vision of the Battle yes. of Waterloo. And it's interesting for two reasons. For one, because it gives you the impression of being in the battle, and another one, because it's kept the way it, it was it's designed. It, it's like going into an old museum, the way that old museums used to be built. And is there an actual museum of the battle there, or would you yes, go to the big museum? There's an, there's, an excellent, there's an excellent museum at the battlefield. They built it underground in such fashion as not to uh, interfere with the landscape okay. of, the, uh, of the battlefield. Hey, uh, Stephen, while you were in Brussels, what was your most memorable meal or drink? Well, we had mussels uh, right there on Grand Place. And, oh, nice. I mean, just, well, the food was great, but just, I mean, that's... The, did you go into Such that an incredible view? Did you go into that classic uh, little place where you step down a few steps at the top end of the square and they've got six or eight tables out on the square? Yes, that's the one. I, I just love that, and it's, especially if you sit out there on a nice day and have a, a local beer and your mussels, mussels and Brussels. Yes. All right, it's a must. Hey, thanks, Stephen, for your call. Thanks, Rick. Hilburn Bias is with us in a travel with Rick Steves conversation we recorded pre-pandemic to help you plan a weekend getaway to the Belgian capital. Since then. Hilburn reports in that he's moved his family to Paris, where he's now working as a nautical advisor to a new global boat chartering company, clickandboat.com. Steve is calling from Minneapolis. Steve, thanks for calling. Yes, hi, Rick. Hi, Hilburn. Hello. Hilburn, can you follow up on something you mentioned uh, at the beginning of your interview? And that is, uh, could you talk a little bit about the history of the Mannequin Piss statue? Uh, we were in Brussels a few years ago and just yeah, were not aware of it until some uh, locals pointed it out and we went and saw it and just cracked up at it. Hmm. So, what a, now, this is a, a tiny little statue of a little boy. What is it, bronze or something? And, it's made of bronze. And he's peeing. He's peeing right there in the corner. Yes. And people get, you can see the crowds of tourists gathering around to look at him. And I think it's a tradition where different uh, groups in the city will actually submit a, a costume for him to wear. So you can have the mannequin sumo wrestler pissing. You can have the the mannequin Detroit policeman pissing. You can have the mannequin whatever. Uh, What's the story about this thing? Well, I have the pleasure to communicate that I'm a member of the historical order of mannequin piss. So I'm part of the um, procession that uh, dresses, undresses him. There's a little ceremony accompanied with with giving him costumes. But most of the time you'll see him undressed. Little boy, he's not very large, and uh, and he's urinating. That's, That's what he does. And uh, there are about six different legends that explain his presence there. None of the legends are corroborated with the historical record. So So what's your favorite legend, and then what's the truth? Well, one of the (laughs) legends is very simply that um, little boy, son of a nobleman, got lost, and the nobleman vowed that if he found his son, he'd be so thankful that he'd make a statue of his son right the way he saw him when he found him, and he was there relieving himself, and so that's the statue they made. Now, of course, there's no record of this. In fact, the history of Monacan Piss gets lost in the dawn of time. The earliest mention that we have of Monacan Piss is in 1425. A stone statue at that exact location is described uh, with a fountain. In 1616, that statue is heavily degraded which means it was obviously very old already in 1425 and it's been replaced uh, with a bronze statue instead. So perhaps it, it could be a statue for a fountain of eternal youth. It could date from the end of the Roman Empire. We don't know. So we don't really know. And I'll tell you, I kind of like the legendary explanation <laughs> better. Hey, Steve, thanks for your call. Absolutely. Thanks to both of you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hilburn Bies about Brussels. And Hilburn, just to wrap up our discussion on Brussels, Brussels is famous for its amazing beer. And just as good as the beer is the atmosphere you find in the pubs where you drink the beer. Yes. 
take me to your favorite pub in Brussels and offer me your favorite beer. Very good. Well, first of all, there's, there's a word I'd like to share with everybody in America. It's estaminet. That's the equivalent that we have to a public house. Where London has the pub, we have the estaminet. And estaminet is a um, little place, quite often dark. The walls have been browned by time and by pipe smoking. If I would take you to the laboureur, it means the laborer, you'd come into a place where on the same day you can see a criminal and a lawyer and a policeman having a beer at the same time. And inside this place, they aren't chasing one another and they aren't pickpocketing one another because they're having a beer. I like that. And in Brussels, there's this amazing tradition where every beer, every different kind of beer, has its own glass, it seems like, and it must be served in the proper glass. Yes, we're very, we're very strict about this. Um, I would certainly expect to receive an apology if uh, if If, if, if a your beer's chime not came in a glass that was meant for a Stella, they would actually ask you before they served it, I'm sorry, we don't have a glass for a chime. Would you mind having it in a Stella glass? That is correct. And, and, I, th- and I think as long as it's acknowledged, there you go. it's just fine. And Hilburn, when we're enjoying that beer, how would we toast to each other's well-being? Opibacus. Literally, Opibacus. Literally, it means this is to your face, but it, it, it means it's here's to you, essentially. Opibacus. Hilburn Weiss, thanks so much for a, a little better understanding of your amazing city. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Rick. We'll hear what some of our Travel with Rick Steves listeners love about their own hometowns in a little bit. But first, we explore what it means to travel like a temporary European the next time you get a chance to visit Europe. Just what makes it a vacation you'll always treasure? Chances are, it had something to do with the people you met along the way and the person you became while immersed in another culture. As you probably know, I've long advocated that our time traveling should be worth so much more than a bucket list. When we travel wide-eyed and receptive to what's different about the places we visit, it can allow us to see things from the perspective of the people whose world we're actually visiting. And maybe let it influence our own world a bit when we get home. For 20 years now, Cameron Hewitt has worked with me at Rick Steves Europe. Cameron's my senior content editor, and he's co-authored a lot of the Rick Steves guidebooks. Cameron's travels, tour guiding, and writing have allowed him to develop his own style of international intimacy with Europe. Cameron's just published his own book of travel tales and advice. It's called The Temporary European, Lessons and Confessions of a Professional Traveler. He's with us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us just what that entails. Cameron, congratulations on your book. It's just wonderful to read. Thank you so much, Rick, and thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, so temporary European. There's different ways to say, you know, travel like a local. Uh, And temporary, it's the perfect title for what you're passionate about in travel. What does temporary European mean to you? Well, it's interesting because when I wrote the book, I collected a lot of my writings over the last several years, and I was looking for common themes. And what became clear as I kind of relived all those travels is the same story came through in all of them, which is when I travel, I like to really connect with local people. And I like to travel with, I think of it as traveling with curiosity and empathy. So you're curious about why things are different or how things are different. But the empathy piece of it is also getting to know people and understand why it's different, why they think about things differently. And I think if you do both of those things, you can kind of travel as a temporary European, try on different people's ways for for size, see how they fit, see what you like, maybe bring some home, maybe not. Um, and so I think that's kind of a, a good principle of great travel. And I think that little phrase you just tossed in there, take some home, maybe not. But while you're in Slovenia, do your best to be a Slovenian. And that's why it's temporary, right? And it's kind of a funny thing. And, and the way the title came about is I was talking to a Slovenian friend of mine, speaking of Slovenia, and we always compare notes about Europeans versus Americans. And at one point she stopped and said, well, Cameron, you're really a European because at this point I've lived about five years of my life uh, out of 45 years in, uh, in Europe 
Um, but she could kind of see where I'd pick things up. And then I thought, well, I'm not really a European. I just <laughs> dabble in being a European. They don't know when I go home how American I become. <laughs> okay, well, let's, it's easy to have these, you know, ideals, these aspirations. But I think a good way to teach it is to get some concrete, vivid specifics. What's an example of as you're traveling around uh, Europe or anywhere? I mean, Arbita is Europe, but it could be anywhere. It could be the United States. It could be South America. It could be Sub-Saharan Africa, Pacific Rim. But let's talk Europe. Give me a concrete example that might open the door to how a lot of us could be better at becoming temporary locals of the place we're exploring. Um, I think it's about just finding everyday kind of practices. So, for example, the very basic act of how do you caffeinate? How do you get your coffee or your caffeine for the day? You know, people are creatures of habit, and Europeans are too. So when you travel from country to country, you notice that people do it differently. In Italy and France, you know, they have this tradition where you walk up to a counter in a cafe, and you slam down a little tiny cup of espresso. It's just this very functional act of, I need to get caffeine into my veins. Um, And I would bet they know you when you step in, because you live just around the corner. (laughs) Your European living quarters are so tight that their, their extended living room or their coffee bar is right there. Well, and speaking of which, in places like Vienna and Budapest, they have this great coffee house tradition where people really do, they don't just slam it down at a counter, they relax, right? They buy a cup of coffee, they might sit there for an hour or two, they borrow a newspaper on a big stick and kind of flip through the newspaper as you they You literally the do not subscribe to a newspaper in Vienna. No. Why would you have a newspaper <laughs> on your door, you know, when you've got the excuse to read the newspaper on a stick and have a coffee surrounded by that wonderful Viennese coffee shop ambiance. That's right, yeah. And in the United Kingdom, for example, you know, they've adopted some of the American Starbucks culture, but ultimately a lot of people still caffeinate not with coffee but with a cup of tea in the afternoon. So each place has different traditions And speaking like of this. temporary European, Cameron, this is something I, I always kind of use as an example when I'm giving a talk. Um, tea makes no sense to me in this hemisphere. But when I'm in England, yes, I need a spot of tea. And you don't have a, a tea kettle with all the little extra things with it in Greece when you go to a B&B. But in England, you've got to have that, or you can write a letter to the authorities. Yeah, they call it a tea service in each, in each B&B room. And man, the, the cheapest, crummiest, most basic hotel room in Britain is going to have a little tea service Always in the a corner. Tea. And I, my friends wouldn't recognize me, but in, in Cumbria, after a nice long day of hiking in, in the Lakes District, I come back to my B&B, and I actually feel like, not a, not a cup of tea, but a spot of tea. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I do the same, yeah. Well, and in the book, I start off the book by telling the story of another coffee tradition in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And I have a good friend there named Alma. And when I come into her town of Mostar, uh, Alma wants to take me out for coffee. Right. And she knows I'm busy because I'm there to work on a guidebook. And I'm just frantically busy and I have a million questions. And she just does a beautiful job of saying, you know, let's slow down and I'll teach you how Bosnians do their coffee. And so she takes me to this beautiful, we walk kind of along the cobbled streets and we go into this sort of caravan survey courtyard. It feels like, you know, you're going back to the Ottoman Empire. And they bring out unfiltered coffee. In the U.S., we often call it Turkish coffee, but they call it Bosnian coffee in Bosnia. Um, and the thing about Bosnian coffee is if it's prepared sloppily or if you drink it too fast, you get a bunch of gunk on the bottom of the cup. But what Alma taught me is if it's prepared properly and if you take your time drinking it, you don't end up having the, the, the gunk in the bottom of the cup. I'm cursed by gunk on the bottom of the cup <laughs> when I'm in former Ottoman Empire territory, you know, and that would be the, the Balkans and Turkey. There you go. That's just, it's kind of like the whole culture screaming at me, slow down. 
and enjoy I, your coffee. And I've had the same thing. So when Alma has told me this, I don't believe her. And then sure enough, we sit there. And the nice thing is she's it's sort of a Trojan horse to get me to relax a little bit yeah. and to have a real conversation. <laughs> so she's saying, you ask questions, listen to the answers, slow and down. here in our country, when we buy a car, the first thing you the second thing you ask is, where's the coffee cup holder? Yeah, because exactly. We, right. we, we get our <laughs> coffee to go because we got other things to do. Cameron Hewitt, my senior writer at Rick Steves Europe, and we're celebrating a special occasion with him right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Cameron's just published his own travel memoir and confessions. It's called The Temporary European. In it, he promises a candid but affectionate reveal of how the sausage gets made in the travel business. We also have a link to Cameron's travel blog and photos. That's in the notes for this week's show. You'll find that at ricksteves.com radio. Cameron, we've been talking about, uh, we've spent the whole first part of this interview talking about one little example of temporary European. Normally when I'm, you know, we're always talking to people with books that are, they're excited about their book and we think it's great and we'll share it. We'd be doing that bucket list kind of thing. It's this checklist of travel. But this really, the kind of travel you're evangelical about is the opposite of bucket list travel. It's intimate travel. And you have this knack, and a good travel writer has a good knack of being a good thoughtful observer and seeing the psychoanalyzing the cultures almost. And and you've got a command of languages far beyond mine, but I love the thought that special words in, in cultures give an insight into that. In Bavaria, you got the word gemutlichkeit. They don't use gemutlichkeit in northern Germany, but it is Bavarian. And it's that almost untranslatable kind of conviviality or coziness. In Denmark, you know, I love the word hugli. Mm-hmm. It's, it's cute. It's cozy. It's little. It's so Danish. Uh, in Andalusia, you've got this passion and this soul. And I don't know the word for soul in very many languages, but I know it in Spanish, duenda, you know, because <laughs> yeah. that's flamenco. Ole. What's a, what's a good word that gives you an insight into, um, into a culture that, in your area of specialty, um, Slavic Europe? Well, speaking of Alma in Bosnia, while we were sitting there having coffee, she taught me this word. It's called chafe. Chafe is the Chafe, word, okay. yeah, and it's it's actually tied to the the coffee thing because it's all about the sort of personal private ritual that you have, something that you do very specific to you, that somehow is comforting to you or it brings you pleasure. But it's it's a very particular you know methodology almost. But other people observing it just think it's it's very strange, almost eccentric, eccentric. So like the way that somebody prepares or drinks a cup of coffee, I thought in my case I have a very specific coffee order mm. that no one else would ever order. Um, in traditional Bosnian culture, they play with worry beads. And so, yes, uh, you know, yes. one time I bought some worry beads in Greece and I said, well, how do you use these? And they looked at me like I was crazy and they were like, there's, there's no, no how to it, use it. It doesn't come with a manual. No, they, everyone kind of worry figures beads out. Worry beads with a manual. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they said, oh yeah, everyone figures out. Some people rub them, some people spin them, some people count them, you know. Yeah. And so chafe would be an example of that. Well, you know, now that you mention it, I love oranges. I just think oranges are the greatest gift. They're so beautiful. They come in these little. You, you, you open it up, and you have the little prepackaged uh, wedges and so on. And I eat it with with a delight. And to warm myself up to the beauty of my next orange, I peel it in a long, skinny spiral, and I see how long I can make the spiral, and in one piece. It's my own private little idiosyncrasy, but I guess that could be called. A chafe. Yeah, in Bosnia, they would say that's your chafe. That's yeah. my chafe. Yeah. In my case, I, I tend to chew gum, especially when I'm nervous or when I'm working on a project. And so my wife tells me, and it's the same kind of gum, and I always chew two sticks. Uh-huh. And she tells me, she can tell how amped up I am about whatever I'm working on by how hard I'm chewing my gum. There but, you go. But see, that's the thing. And there's also some wisdom here. It's not just a clever word. In Bosnian culture, there's an understanding that you have to accept somebody's chafe. 
because everybody has a oh, chafe. Oh, so, that's so cut people some slack. Yeah, no matter how odd or quirky or annoying it might be to you, you just have to say, all right. Truth, truth be told, you got your own chafe, and we've put up with it. that for 20 years that's now. That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> we right. We don't get tired of it. When you're not there, we roll our eyes, but that's you, and God bless you. <laughs> that's, that's it. You got it. Hey, now, there's some low-hanging fruit for travelers to become temporary Europeans. I think an easy, obvious example is the marketplace. How do you approach marketplaces in your travels all around Europe? Well, obviously, for, for any traveler, markets are exciting. But, you know, you find a lot of people who go to markets and they just kind of run through and they don't really know what they're looking for. They don't really understand how the system works. And they take some nice pictures and go home. I think it's really worth it to take some time to understand the way locals approach the market. So there was a trip where my wife and I had a week's vacation. And we said, you know, let's take a week in Provence in the south of France. We'd been through a couple of times kind of running through. But we said we want to settle in for the whole week. And we went to seven markets, seven different markets in seven days. And, and this for, is all in, in Provence? All within an hour's drive, honestly, because in Provence, they rotate towns, rotate the traveling market. So, so conceivably, you could have seen the same merchant in every one of those we markets. We did. In, in a few of them, we saw the same people, but it was always a different kind of configuration in each mm-hmm. market. It's yeah. kind of fun because each market had its own character. We had a, a local friend who showed us around and taught us some tips. So, for example, she said, you know, you see all this beautiful produce, but there's two kinds of people selling produce at the market. There's the produce resellers, and then there's the farmers. So the produce resellers, you can tell because they have a wide variety of fruit. Sometimes it even still has the stickers on it. And if there's any kind of tropical fruit that wouldn't grow locally, like Mm -hmm. bananas or mangoes, Mm -hmm. they're a reseller. And she said, the resellers aren't bad. It's still good quality. But because it has to be transported there, it's not necessarily ripe. Sometimes you have to wait a little bit. Whereas the farmers are the ones that have only a few items. So if you see a table that has two or three kinds of foods that grow together, you know that's a farmer. You also know the farmer picked that stuff that morning, and so it's going to be fresh that day. He picked it that morning to sell today at the market and to be eaten later today. And when we travel, we can connect in with that that heritage and that love of nature and that appreciation of eating with the season. You know, when I'm in Provence and I stumble into a market, I'm told it's Wednesday, the market's on. And I go, wow, I'm lucky. But take it one step further. If you're planning smartly, you can easily find out when those markets are, and then it's not hit or miss. You don't have a one in seven chance of hitting the market when you're in Orador sur You are going to be there on Thursday when that's the market day. And that's what we did on this trip. We actually planned where we were staying. Yeah. The first thing we did was figure out where the markets, and that's we moved to right. a couple of different home bases, but we, we kind of coordinated Let's go up to this town on Thursday because Friday morning we know the market's going to be there. And yeah. you can never see the same market twice. I mean, it's always different. We, You and I went to a market in Herzegovina once, mm-hmm. yeah. and I'll never forget it. It was one of the most beautiful experiences because most of the stalls in that market were actual farmers, right? I mean, they literally had folding tables or even just like, you know, picnic blankets on the pavement that they had their, their produce out And on. shopping there, we were temporary Europeans. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Cameron Hewitt. And he's my most prolific partner in travel writing. And Cameron and I have been working together for 20 years. Cameron's been instrumental in uh, broadening our coverage of Europe to include Eastern Europe, because that's Cameron's passion. And Cameron has long written a blog, a beautiful blog, and he's got a, a following there that appreciates Cameron's insights and thoughtful approach to travel. And Cameron has collected his writings over the last 20 years into a new book. It's called The Temporary European. And Cameron, congratulations on this book. It's just a real accomplishment. And it's sort of a gift to travelers to to contain all of your writing in a beautifully designed package like this. Yeah, thank you. It was fun to go back through my blog and pick out my favorites and kind of rewrite a lot of them. It was it was fun to have another crack at some stuff that I'd done pretty quickly and, and add some new stuff as well. And you take this um, love of travel a little bit to a new dimension because of your experience as a tour guide. 
And as tour guides, people are hell-bent on seeing this or that because it's a tourist trap. They've heard about it all their life, and you can't go to Pisa without seeing the Leaning Tower. How do you deal with um, the necessity of including uh, the kilts and the wooden shoes and the you know that, that kind of stuff and still making it culturally worthwhile? Yeah, and I think that's a, a big challenge for the thoughtful traveler and especially the thoughtful travel writer is sort of how to navigate those cliches. So I, I use an expression in the book I call deconstructing cliches. So, hmm. you know, I've, I, I know we have some colleagues, Rick, who are kind of sticklers, and they say if it's just a cliche, we want to debunk it and we want to ignore it. We don't want people wallowing in cliches. Yeah. But I'd rather kind of like dig into the cliche, <laughs> deconstruct it, figure out where the kernel of truth is, because first of all, travelers want to see those things. But I feel like it's our responsibility not just to kind of give it to them on a platter and then move on to the next thing, but to learn more about it and kind of understand the background of it. You know, I think in Scandinavia, there's a—I love folk dancing, by the way. It's been there for centuries, and it's an insight into the cultures. And I think it's in, it's, it's in Norway, I think, where you've got a folk dance that features a girl holding a hat on a stick. Huh, interesting. And, and the guy who's, who's looking for a girl, he dances around and he kind of struts like a—, like a a peacock looking for a partner <laughs> and she holds the hat on the post and he kicks that hat off the post and she he struts around and she raises the post higher and another guy comes around and he oh, kicks I know what you're that talking hat about. off they, that they take post. turns trying to see who can who jump can, higher who can kick higher <laughs> and the girl is really when you look at it from a procreation and who's my best mate and safety point of view for my children she's looking for a guy who can protect her uh, back in the old days, and you don't need to physically protect your partner now, but that does have that history. And when you think in the old days, you were all in the very care of your loved ones and your seniors, and there was all these taboos and everything, and your only avenue, your only social outlet was gathering around the fire with all the generations and folk dancing and flirting at each other at the same time. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, I, I love that. Oh, man. Hey, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been celebrating the Temporary European. This is Cameron Hewitt's new book. Cameron, I don't know if proud is the word. I'm so thankful for what you've done, and I'm just very impressed. If we could just wrap things up, when we're all excited about getting back to Europe and getting back to normal, and we don't know if it's going to be endemic or pandemic or gone, but what is the takeaway for travel after COVID that you would hope people reading your book can incorporate into the way they look at the world before they head out and explore it. You know, we travelers had this very long period where we couldn't travel, and and basically all we could do was dream and kind of remember our travels. And I thought a lot, especially because I was writing this book, about what I might do differently when I go back. And I think reliving these memories, I realized what they have in common is they didn't take place at the big bucket list sites. They took place between the bucket list sites. And so one thing I really could preach about in this book is slow down, you know, I know you've got a busy itinerary, and, and I'm working, so I'm even busier than you are. But you've got to take moments to slow down, take it in, be present in Europe. Uh, the way I talk about this is if you hear a church bell chime, take a breath, listen to the church bell chime instead of rushing off to the next thing. Enjoy those sort of precious little moments where you get to try on being a European just for a little while. And, you know, it's hard. It's really hard for me and you as, as people who are working when we're in Europe. And even for a tourist or a traveler, there's so much you want to see and do. But I got to tell you, it's very clear to me, the very best memories come between the stuff that's on your itinerary. It's those magic moments in the middle. Amen. The book is The Temporary European, the author, Cameron Hewitt, and it is the fruits of decades of thoughtful travel and teaching and inspiring all of us travelers to get more out of our trip. And it's not with a bucket list. It's with an appreciation of how to travel as a temporary local. Cameron, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Rick. Appreciate it. 
Have you found that your travels have helped you better appreciate the place you call home? Let's hear about what you find special about your own home turf next at 877-333-7425. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. I'm ready for this segment. I get to learn from you about your favorite place, your hometown. I spend so much time talking about my favorites. Now, the ball's in your court. And our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Dusty's calling in from Bar Harbor in Maine. Dusty, thanks for calling in. Thank you, Rick. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, You live in a beautiful corner of Maine, I think. We do, yes. I think it's one of the most beautiful parks, even in the United States. And this is uh, Acadia National Park. Are you right at at the gateway to Acadia, or what's the deal? We actually live inside the park because we're rangers, so our housing unit is within the park itself. Now, I keep hearing people raving about Acadia. Yeah. You know, what is it about the intoxicating beauty of nature in Maine? Well, um, the place that makes this kind of special is this is where the mountains really meet the sea. You go from, say, 1,500 feet to sea level in a mantle of less than a quarter of a mile, somewhere around there. And the vegetation is lush. It's cool in the summertime, and people just enjoy getting away from the city. We're the really the only place that people in the New England area can go to get to a national park. So it's intoxicating from them to get out of the city, away from New York City, Boston, and in a matter of a couple of hours just being up in the mountains and in a really beautiful spot. So end of the day on Friday, you can hop in your car in Boston and in a couple hours be in Acadia National Park? You can be at the park from Boston in about five hours. In five hours. Okay, so that's a fair drive. Yeah. And people do it. You've been there for a long time. How long have you been working there? Uh, About 20 years. Does it get old? No, not at all. (laughs) Not at all. It's fascinating. Uh, It changes every day. The people are wonderful. We get to see people from all over the world all the time. So it can get hectic at times. Well, Dusty, dissect the wonderful for me here. I mean, specifically, I mean, of course, it's beautiful. It's green. It's where the mountains hit Mm -hmm. the sea. But what is it? Is it the the sound of the clams squirting at low tide, or or, or (laughs) what is it? No, I, I think it's, for a lot of people, it's their first real solid exposure to nature. Uh, If they live in a city or they've grown up in a city, uh, and now they've made a venture out here to see what it's like to be in the wilderness. And they're just amazed. And they enjoy the serenity, even with a lot of people. You can certainly get out on the trails here. We have 150 miles of trails here. And people can go out and they can wander for hours and just enjoy being by themselves with nature or whatever here. And it's the first experience for a lot of people. And for them, it's a big wow factor. They've never done it before, and, and now here they are enjoying it. And to enjoy Acadia National Park, do you basically drive there, park your car, enjoy the um, natural exhibit where you get primed to see and appreciate the nature, and then use that as a trailhead and go walking? Or, or what is the, the mechanics of a visit to your great corner of the country? Well, um, one of the first things people do is they take the Park Loop Road which is a 27-mile loop that covers a lot of the iconic stuff that's here in the park, uh, especially when they drive out on the cliffs and they're right over the ocean, and especially if the waves are really pounding in. They'll stop, Mm. get out of their car, take some pictures, wander around, 
not really hike the first day too much mm-hmm. and just try and take in one section. Mm-hmm. And then what we do here is we try and help them plan the rest of their visit. Uh, not everybody's a hiker. Uh, some are, um, some aren't. But we can usually convince people to go on a short hike. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's usually all it really takes is if they've gone out on a maybe a half hour, 45-minute walk. Yeah. That's a really big thing for them, and they, they want more. They said, this was a ah. wonderful experience. We've never done anything like this before, so, so let's do some more. That tip there, Dusty, and, and you're a park ranger in, in a beloved American National Park, that tip mm-hmm. to, to leave the car. So many people, whether they're in Europe or the United States, they complain about the crowds, and, and all there was was exhaust fumes and noisy people and traffic jams. Yeah. Park the car, well, we have those. walk for half an hour. Every time I, you think of how much energy you put in to get there, well, get over the goal line, leave your car, walk half an hour, and then you get to connect with that pristine nature. And if you have a park ranger and the organization of a park to make sure you're going in the right direction, it's going to be a rewarding experience. It is. Not everybody is up to doing serious hiking. We have a lot of mountains here. There's hardly anything that's flat in the park. But when John D. Rockefeller was here, his estate was here, and one of his favorite things to do was build roads. He built about 45 miles of carriage roads within the park. And those were the roads that he used to take his visitors out on Hmm. to see all the magnificent sights. Well, when he left the property to us, he also left those roads to us. And those are like 12-foot-wide gravel paths um, that are less than a 7% grade. So for somebody who's not quite as ambitious, they can go out and they can hike on those, or they can bike. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a big deal. There's no cars on it. You must get some blustery weather on the bluffs. I mean, that makes it more we dramatic. We do. Well, today's kind of blustery, but it can be, especially if there's a hurricane at sea. Uh, yeah. We've had times when there's been 20-foot waves here that smash against the granite. And, uh, on those days, we think everybody would stay home, but they want to come out this dramatic action. Yeah, I so. would. That sounds great. Yeah. Dusty, yeah. thank you for your work at that park because uh, you must be doing your job right because I've never heard anything but rave reviews about Acadia National Park in Maine. Well, Rick, you need to come. I'm gonna. It's on Probably my list. <laughs> I yeah. will. We've got your contact information there. Thanks so much, Dusty. Okay. We're talking about your neck of the woods. I get to share my travel adventures. Now you're sharing yours. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Carol's calling in from Bel Air in Florida. Carol, thanks for your call. Hello, Rick. How are you doing? I'm great. And you're in Florida. Yes. What what do you like about, uh, what do you rave about Florida for your visitors that you want to entice down there? Well, people think of the beaches, but we have more than the beaches. Uh, On a rainy day or just to enjoy it, we have wonderful Dolly Museum down in St. Petersburg, brand new building that was designed for this to really showcase this exhibition. Uh, and additionally, we have a wonderful museum called the Imagination Museum, which is glass. It's a history of glass making. It's contemporary, antique glass. There will be people that work in glass there that you can talk with, you can take classes there, all sorts of things. In fact, we are considered an artist's glass destination. We have Chihuly hmm. here and uh, Morian Art Gallery, so a lot of, of uh, art glass being done here. Well, what's another dimension of uh, the attractions in Florida? Well, we have beautiful beaches. We have uh, marine 
study areas. In fact, every other year, the Great Blue Ocean, uh, it's not a festival. It's a meeting of people that have to do with the health and, and education about our oceans. Uh, it alternates years being in Monte Carlo and then being in St. Petersburg hmm. every other year. Okay. So world-class destination for a lot of scientists. So we've got art, we've got nature, we've got um, all sorts of, uh, you know, just amusements, of course, in Florida. What about the cuisine? What, what would you recommend for some unforgettable meal to have in your in your well, state? Well, Ray Lamp, who is Dr. Barbecue, has a new place down next to Tropicana Ballfield, not far from the Imagine Museum. Okay. So, Dr. Barbecue. Wonderful, I never wonderful thought of barbecue. Barbecue yes. in Florida. All right. What, yes. what, what's unique about barbecue in Florida? Because I, I travel around the country to different stations, you know, for my work in public television and public radio, and lots of states are eager to feed me barbecue, but I've never had barbecue in Florida. Well, um, Ray Lamp is, he's in the Pitmaster Hall of Fame, so he is that good. And it's, it's a very artsy, very quirky building that they've converted down okay. there. Okay, so he does yes. good barbecue. Yes, he does. But, of course, we have seafood, too. Lots of seafood. We have Cuban food, uh, Spanish restaurants. Not that far north from St. Petersburg, we have Tarpon Springs with uh, the Greek community, wonderful Mm. Greek food. So, Carol, what about just a good old-fashioned gut bomb on some roadside diner in Florida? What what would I look for? I would look for Frenchies, which is the old-fashioned seafood restaurants like you used to have on the beach years ago. Mm. You know, everybody just put something over their swimsuit and walked in and had uh, sandwiches, fries, local seafood. Right on the beach. Sounds good. Right on the beach or crab cakes. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Carol, thanks for your call. Okay. Thank you. Happy travels. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye. And Deb from Albany, New York, sent us an email, and Deb writes, My hometown is Troy in New York, across the Hudson River from Albany. Troy is the home of, quote, Uncle Sam Wilson and a downtown core of fabulous Victorian buildings. Visit the Triangular Rice Building across the street from where The Night Before Christmas was published. See the Tiffany glass windows of our churches or take in the view across the horizon from Prospect Park. Eat at a new restaurant or cruise the huge Troy Farmer's Market on Saturday mornings. That all sounds pretty darn interesting. And if you're near Albany, we can thank Deb for that tip. Alexis, who's in Lausanne in Switzerland, sent us this interesting email. I'm an American travel writer who's made lovely Lausanne my home for the past 13 years. Skip Geneva and spend the extra day here in the San Francisco of Switzerland. It's home to two top universities. There's always an interesting event on the city's cultural calendar. Switzerland may not win any prizes in the excitement department, but bustling Lausanne is the closest you'll get to cool in the Alps. Wow, Alexis, that's quite an endorsement of Lausanne. Remember, there's Lucerne and there's Lausanne. This is L-A-U-S-A-N-N-E. It's on Lake Geneva in the south of Switzerland, the French-speaking part of Switzerland. And I agree with you, Alexis. Geneva, 
It's pretty good if you're some international official, but it's kind of boring if you're a traveler. And I would far prefer the town of Lausanne on the same lake. And you call it the San Francisco of Switzerland? Well, yeah, I can imagine that because it's on hills. In fact, there's an upper town and a lower town connected by like a funicular or a, a very steep cog rail train. And on the waterfront, you've got beautiful boat rides on Lake Lausanne, and you've got a fascinating um, uh, museum to the Olympics. And up in the high town, you've got a wonderful church. You've got a museum to art done by people who are locked up because they were criminally insane. And you've just got a wonderful opportunity to, to feel the pulse of urban Switzerland. So often when we go to Switzerland, we're all focused on the Alps, high in the mountains. But, you know, there's some beautiful cities in Switzerland. And I would say Lucerne and Bern, the capital, and Lausanne on the south end of the country on Lake Geneva. Those are the most beautiful cities, and they're all worth a good look. Thanks, Alexis, for the email. I know some of you aren't going to like what's next, but let's see if we can travel there together for a few minutes. Making the very best foie gras. That's a rich goose liver pâté, in case you've never tried it. Well, it's a point of pride among many farmers and residents in rural France. But some Americans, and a few in France, would argue that the agricultural practices that go into producing foie gras are not appropriate anymore. Here's what I observed some years ago while visiting a farm in the south of France. I wrote about it in my recent book of European travel tales called For the Love of Europe. Elbows on a rustic windowsill at a farm in the Dordogne region, I lose track of time watching Denny grab one goose at a time from an endless line. In a kind of peaceful, mesmerizing trance, he fills each one with corn. Like his father and his father's father before him, Denny force-feeds geese for a living. He spends five hours a day, every day, all year long, sitting in a barn on a rolling stool with a machine that looks like a giant vacuum cleaner surrounded by geese. Denny rhythmically grabs a goose by the neck, pulls him under his leg and stretches him up, slides the tube down to the belly and fills it with corn. He pulls the trigger to squirt the corn, slowly slides the tube up the throat and out, holds the beak shut for a few seconds, lets the goose go, and grabs the next. When I tell friends I've witnessed geese being force-fed the traditional way their livers are fattened to make foie gras, the prized delicacy in the Dordogne, many express disgust. There are people who want to boycott French foie gras for what they consider inhumane treatment of the geese. That's why I'm on Denny's farm to learn more about le gavage, as the force-feeding process is called, with a first-hand visit. Elevage du Boussiot is a big, homey goose farm a short drive from Sarla. It's run by Denny and Natalie Mazette. Their geese are filled with corn three times a day for the last months of their lives. They have expandable livers and no gag reflex, so the corn stays there, gradually settling as it's digested and making room for the next visit from Denny and his corn gun. Watching Denny work, I wonder what his life is like spending so much time with an endless cycle of geese. Do geese populate his dreams? While Denny squirts corn, Natalie meets tourists, mostly French families, who show up each evening at 6 p.m. to see how their beloved foie gras is made. The groups stroll the idyllic farm as Natalie explains how they raise a thousand geese a year. 
She emphasizes that the all-important key to top-quality foie gras is happy geese raised on quality food in an unstressed environment. They need quality corn and the same feeder. To his geese, Denny is calm and no threat. I join the group as we scatter seed for the baby geese. We stroll into the grassy back lot where the older geese run free. Backlit by the low, early evening sun, they glow in rich colors. The mazettes sell every part of the goose except the head and feet. The down feathers net less than a euro per goose. The serious money is in the livers. A normal liver weighs a quarter pound. After the force-feeding process is finished, the liver weighs about two pounds. With a thousand geese, they produce a ton of foie gras annually. Barely enough to support one family, Natalie says. These mature geese actually have a special shape, like they are waddling around with a full diaper under their feathers. This fattened goose silhouette has become a sales icon in shops throughout the Dordogne. Just the sight of it is enough to make English travelers salivate. They come here in droves for the foie gras. Why the Dordogne? This region in southwest France is on the goose migratory path south. Ages ago, locals caught geese on their migration, livers voluntarily enlarged in anticipation of the long journey. As the French are inclined to do, they ate the innards, found them extra tasty, and decided to produce them on their own. Those first French foie gras farmers didn't know it, but they didn't invent the technique of keeping geese and enlarging their livers for human consumption. La Gavage goes back to ancient Egyptian times. When I tell Natalie that some of my American readers will say I've been duped, she reminds me that their geese are calm, in no pain, and actually designed to take in food in this manner. And then she reminds me American farm animals are typically kept in little cages and fed chemicals and hormones to get fat. Most battery chickens in the United States live less than two months and are plumped up with hormones. Natalie's free-range geese live six months. Dordogne geese live their lives at least as comfy as other farm animals that many people, so upset with the foie gras process, have no problem eating. They're slaughtered as humanely as any non-human can expect in this food chain existence. After a few days in the Dordogne, where markets are filled with zealous farmers passing out little goose liver sandwiches and where every meal seems to start with foie gras, I always leave with a strong need for a foie gras detox and a strong desire to return soon. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find more at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.